Father, we come to you this morning and we declare that you are good. You are good in so many ways to us, God. We are amazed by you this morning. God, we thank you for the goodness you've shown us in our families this week. For all the many blessings that you've given us. God, we thank you for the goodness you've shown us in even having this place that we're sitting in right now. Lord, this is an amazing blessing. And uh, Lord, we, we're just amazed by you. We give you thanks for your goodness. We give you thanks for your goodness in our lives and the fact that for many of us here, you have saved us. You called us, you saved us, and uh, Lord, we thank you for your work in our lives. You are good. And Lord, there are some here this morning who are having a hard time thinking that you're good because of what they're going through right now. Lord, I pray right now by the power of your spirit, you would show yourself to them. Grant them power of your peace and your presence and show them your goodness in each step along the way because you are good you've given us life you've given us breath you've given us all that's around us no one else can do that but you so this morning we declare God that you are good we praise you and worship you Just right now between you and God, just in the quietness of this place, just whisper to him and just say, God, thanks for your goodness to me in this area of my life. And just tell him how good he is to you right now. Now, Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. May it change us, and Lord, may you use us as a result of what you teach us here today. We thank you, Lord. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. What well, is awesome to be here with you this morning and back here this weekend. It was a week ago. Yeah, we all right. Thanks for the support. We, all right. And it was a week ago last uh, Saturday night that I was standing in one of the oldest churches in Nashville, Tennessee. And I had the privilege of marrying my own son. And uh, thanks for letting me uh, do that and be away. Daniel and Ashley. And here's a picture of them. Um, And uh, just a wonderful time. I got to tell you, in all the weddings I've been a part of through the years, several hundred weddings through the years, I've never yet seen a bride come down the aisle like her. She was just laughing. I mean, just laughing all the way down. She couldn't control her excitement. She was just laughing. And even during the vows and everything up front, she's just jumping up and down. I mean, she had been waiting for this moment. And it was so cool to see, you know, when you're you're marrying your son, that her love for him was just amazing. And then when I sat down with her a couple months ago, and uh, she's kind of a driven person, Ashley is, and, and she says, what are you speaking about at my wedding? And I said, well, you know, I, I haven't really thought about it yet because I had another wedding to do yet before I had gotten to theirs. She says, well, here's what I want you to talk about. She says, I want you to speak about godly submission in the marriage. What it looks like for a woman to submit to her husband because he's the spiritual leader of the family. That's what I want you to talk about. I'd never had anyone ask me that before. 
to talk about submission in the marriage like that. It was really quite, quite amazing. And just maybe so thankful that not only is Daniel following Christ, Ashley is following Christ, they're united in him. And it was just, just such a great time last weekend with our families to celebrate that. It was amazing. It's good to be back. I've been looking forward to this series and the last couple of weeks we've been taking a look at Game Changers. Game Changers. And we've taken a look at a couple of Old Testament characters. We're going to continue that theme today. And in light of that, I just want you to know about this story. There's a story that's been told about this very successful beauty product company. What it did is it asked a bunch of people in that large city where it resided to send in pictures to them of the most beautiful women they'd ever seen. Along with that picture, people were to send in a corresponding letter explaining why that woman was so beautiful. Within a month, thousands of pictures and letters flooded the company office, but there was one letter in particular that caught the attention of the employees there that eventually made its way to the hands of the company president. It was written by this young boy from a rough side of town. He's from a broken home. And with corrections made for his spelling, here's a portion of the letter. A beautiful woman lives down the street from me. I visit her every day. She makes me feel like the most important kid in the world. We play checkers and she listens to my problems. She understands me. And when I leave, she yells out the door that she's proud of me. This picture shows you that she is the most beautiful woman. I hope I have a wife as pretty as her. Well, touched by the letter, the president wanted to see the corresponding picture. And so when it was handed to him, what did he see? But a smiling, toothless woman, well advanced in years, sitting in a wheelchair. Her face covered with wrinkles, and yet she still had that glimmer in her eye. The president looked at the picture and he looked up at the employees there. He says, you know, we can't use this woman's picture for our campaign because if we did, everyone would know that you don't really need our products in order to be beautiful. (laughs) I love the story because that woman was a game changer. She didn't look like a person of influence, but she was a person of influence. She saw a need and she filled it. She filled it. She saw this boy who was lonely. She saw this boy who didn't have any encouragement, and she saw these problems. She stepped in, and as a result, he looks at her as the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. That's what a game changer looks like. That's what a game changer is all about. And I love this story because the reality is for so many of us is we write ourselves off. We think, you know, we're not smart enough, we're not talented enough, we're not good-looking enough to make an impact. And so what do we do? We sit on the sidelines, we kind of watch the world go by. And the reality is God has called every single person here in this place to be a game-changer in your life, in your home, in your workplace. Are you being one? Are you being one? And I'm so glad you're here this morning because while this whole series, I think, is a great series... I think this morning is a pivotal message in this series. Because while we'll talk about certain game changers, even in a couple weeks to follow, and how they became a game changer, today, Nehemiah is going to teach us how to be a game changer. Not just how they did it, but it's very applicable to every single one of us. And so if you're a student in high school, I encourage you to take in these lessons. Because these will be helpful to you in your life. If you're somebody who's well advanced in years, perhaps there's some lessons here. And maybe you've got to go back and do some things over if you can. 
And I encourage every single one of us here to take these lessons in because Nehemiah is going to teach us today how to be a game changer. And I'll make you a guarantee, if you actually apply his five lessons to your life, you'll be one. You'll be one. And so let's take a look. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And as we do, the big idea of our study today is this. Walls of leadership are built one stone at a time. Walls of leadership are built one stone at a time. Remember now, these are the words of Nehemiah written to you, to me. He writes, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, which is the month of November, in the 20th year, that's somewhere around 445 B.C. This is a, a long time ago. As I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Here is their trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Suddenly, Nehemiah hears this and in his mind's eye, he sees these stones, once vital, once strong, once united, standing strong, protecting the city, and now they're broken down. These stones are tumbling in pieces there in the streets. In his mind's eye, he saw something like this. Here's an ancient wall, and you can see how easy it would be for the enemy to advance. But in a different way, I want you to take a look at that picture and be honest with yourself now and ask yourself, does that picture relate to some facet of your life? That broken down wall with the stones just kind of crumbling and falling to the ground, might it represent the state of your marriage right now? Might it represent a relationship, a broken relationship you have with a friend or a family member? Might it represent the status of your job? Is there any way that that picture represents something that's going on in your life right now? And if it does, I want to encourage you to embrace the path of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah knew if the wall of Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt, it needed to be laid on a sure foundation. A sure foundation. This particular stone over here. I'm going to ask Stace if he can help me here. And this is the stone of recognition. Of recognition. See, a game changer recognizes when there's a problem. A game changer recognizes when there's a problem. You think, well, that's not all that profound, but think about it. So many people in your life, you know something's off. Something's not quite right. And, you know, you kind of explain it away. You kind of step back, kind of hope somehow it's going to work itself out. You might even have someone in your life that's important to you and they're, they're making a whole host of decisions that are destructive. And you think, okay, well, that's just a phase. You know, they'll, they'll get through it. Hopefully they'll come out the other side. They'll be okay. And you kind of stand on the sidelines watching as the world goes by. A game changer, a true game changer recognizes that there is a problem, calls it out for what it is. Nehemiah knew he had a problem because if the Jewish people were going to survive at all, the gates of that city needed to be repaired. 
It was a significant problem that needed an answer. Do you have a problem in your life? Are you recognizing it for what it is? Are you calling it out? Because the reality is this. Merely recognizing a problem exists does not make one a game changer. It doesn't. Take, for example, our national debt. So many Americans take a look at our national debt. They say it's growing every single day. I mean, our our country is going to take a tumble because we're going more into debt every single day. It's astounding. And yet, what are we doing about it? What is anyone doing about it? Zero, right? We recognize there's a problem, not doing anything. Take a look at Iran, for example. People say, well, that's a problem. One day they're going to have nuclear weapons. That is a problem. But what are you doing about it? Are you writing your congressman? Are you taking action in some way? You see, it's what you do with the problem at hand that determines if you're a game changer or not. And so, Nehemiah, he recognizes his problem. He calls it out for what it is. Are you calling yours out? And then he begins to take action. What does he do? Take a look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down. And what did he do? He wept and mourned for days. Hold on to that one. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. And then listen to this. He writes, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. You see, once you recognize that you've got a problem, this stone of recognition, if you're going to be a game changer, you need another stone that you build upon the stone of recognition. It's exactly what Nehemiah did in his life. And it's an important stone that a lot of times people overlook They don't implement in their lives. And the reality is the need to. Because if you don't, you won't be a game changer. And it's this particular stone here. It's the stone of burden. Of burden. You feel the weight of that problem because a game changer is burdened by the problem. You're burdened by it. It keeps you up at night. See, take a look at Nehemiah. He didn't immediately go into solution mode like many Americans do. You know, He didn't run to Jerusalem. He didn't gather up all the stones needed. He didn't, you know, enlist some volunteers to build the wall. In fact, many people would look at what Nehemiah did and say, you know what, he didn't do anything at all. And yet, because he was so burdened by the problem, he naturally does three things that many people don't do because we're not burdened by our problems. The first thing is he mourned. He sat down, the Bible says, and he mourned for days. You see, a leader must first feel the problem before he can solve the problem. If you don't feel it, your problem's not going to get solved. It really isn't. You've got to feel the problem. So many people, what we do is we live in denial. We act like the problem's not there or we, re- we recognize it. We just kind of hope it's going to go away. Think about the problem you're facing in your life right now. And perhaps it's time for you to be just like Nehemiah to sit down and have a good cry. To weep over that wayward child. To weep over that broken relationship. To mourn over that problem because you're burdened by the problem. Because he was burdened by his problem, he mourns. He does something else. He fasted, he writes. He fasted. 
I don't know if you know what fasting is, but it's a time when a Christian will go without food for perhaps a day or so and really put themselves in a position of weakness that reminds them that they need God's strength in their life. God, I need you. That's what fasting is all about. And so he mourns and he fasts. Let me ask you, have you been living so long in the fast lane you can't remember the last time that you fasted? Someone who's burdened by the problem, you mourn. And you'll fast over that problem. And then the third thing that Nehemiah did as a result of his burden over that problem is he confessed. He confessed. You see, a leader must admit any role he or she played in the creation of that problem, even if it's really small. Because what we tend to do when we have a problem in our lives, we tend to place the blame somewhere else. In our minds, if they own 50%, they actually own 60 And after a while, we talk ourselves and they own 70 80 And eventually, it's just their problem. We have to own our part in the problem if it's going to get solved at all. And take, for example, Nehemiah. He wasn't even there. People in his life would say, Nehemiah, you did not cause this wall to tumble down. You weren't even there. And yet Nehemiah says what? He says, even my own disobedience in some way has contributed to this problem. He owned his part. Are you owning yours? Because so often we want to run away from these things. We don't want to own our part of the problem. If you're going to be a game changer, you've got to own your part of the problem. And I realize how, how difficult that can be firsthand. About five years ago, I'm living in, in Lansing, Michigan, and um, one of the things that I love to do is jog. I would go out almost every single day and jog. Now, unlike my wife who jogs, she likes to go outside, and wherever her feet might take her, that's where she goes. It's an adventure. For me, I want to get home. And so I have two routes that I would jog. I had my two-mile route, I had my three-mile route, and I ran them religiously. In fact, so many times that I could actually start my jog and get all the way home and not even remember taking a left or taking a right, going here or going there. Somehow, magically, I just ended up back home because my mind went on autopilot, completely clues as to what was going on along the way. What I would do when I came home from my jog, my two miles or my three miles, is I'd walk the street that we were on. So I'd run down the street, and then what I'd do is I'd walk up one side of the street all the way to the end, cross the street, come back, walk down the other, because we lived on a cul-de-sac, and I would do this about three or four times before I'd go back inside and take a shower. Well, on this particular day, what did I do is I took my jog, I ran home, I started taking my walk, and I'm just walking on the sidewalk there, you know, that you have in your neighborhood. I'm just walking on the sidewalk. And, and I'm walking by this neighbor's home and then this neighbor's home. And I walk by this neighbor's home. And suddenly, as I'm walking by my neighbor's house here, suddenly this guy, he darts out the door and he starts running towards me. He's going to tackle me and take me down. I'm not making this up. <laughs> This was a man in our neighborhood that nobody really talked to. He had a huge anger problem. When he was drinking, it'd get downright scary. Neighbors had seen him beating up his own children, screaming at his wife. And so he comes out, and now he's coming after me to tackle me to take me down. And so I didn't even know what to do. What I did is I just turned around. My first impulse was I just looked at him with a very stern voice. I pointed at him. I said, go back into your house. He actually did it. And you know what? 
I kept walking. I'm like, you know, I'm walking fast. I mean, I'm just almost a sprint right now. I'm walking so fast to get out of there. I'm thinking, oh, good. Whatever that was, that's over now. That was strange. Okay, I'm walking. I get to the end of the street. I come back. Now I'm walking down the other side to come back home. And now he's on his front porch. And he's there, and he's like a caveman. His face is all red. He's screaming at me. He's yelling at me. He's using every conceivable swear word you've ever heard and every conceivable combination of swear words you've ever heard. He's using on me. He's cussing me out. I'm sitting there going, what is this guy's problem? And then he said something. He said, if you ever spit in my lawn again, I'm going to take you out. I spit in his lawn? You know what? If you actually jog, if you're actually a serious runner, you know this. You're running along the way. You don't even think about it. Somewhere along the way, you just kind of spit, and you're moving on, right? And I I must have spat in this guy's lawn. I don't remember doing it at all, but I must have done it because he said that I did. Then I went into defensive mode as I'm walking home. I'm thinking, what's what's the big deal? I mean, his grass needs to grow. It needs a little bit of water. I mean, what is this guy's problem? You know, so I walk back home. I'm in my house, and now it's all his problem, right? Because he's got an anger problem. He's got a drinking problem. Nobody likes him. Nobody talks to him. Everybody's afraid of him. This guy's got a real problem. Then I realized, you know, his, his marriage is not good. His relationship with his kids, horrible. He doesn't like his job. He doesn't like any of the neighbors. What he did every single Saturday, from the time he got up to the end of the day, was he worked on his lawn. He had the most beautiful lawn in our neighborhood. And I had spat on the only thing that was beautiful in his life. So I had to confess my part in the problem. But I wasn't going to walk over to his house, knock on his front door, and have a little conversation. I wanted to live, see my kids grow up, maybe be a grandparent one day. And so I sat down and I wrote him a letter. And I didn't walk the letter down and put it in his mailbox. I actually put a stamp on it and mailed it to him. Okay? I'm not making any of this up. Here's what I wrote. I said, dear neighbor, I've been thinking about how you confronted me the other day as I was finishing my job. I've learned over time that when someone acts out in anger, it is because they were hurt in some way. Obviously, my actions that day hurt you, and for this, I'm truly sorry. As a neighbor, I would never want to do anything to knowingly hurt or offend you. I've also learned a few other things over time that I wanted to share with you. Someone once told me that a person's actions indicate the quality of that person. Since I moved to this neighborhood, I've always thought of you as a quality guy. For example, I can still remember you cleaning up the trees and shrubbery at the end of our cul-de-sac several years ago. I was struck by your servant attitude. Thanks. In addition, my friend also told me that a person's language determines how much respect that person has for himself and for others. This is why I've determined in my heart to never call someone a name or use crude language against them. To do so would indicate that I do not think highly of myself or for another human being that God created. I just thought I'd share this with you. If you ever desire to sit down and talk more about this, I'd welcome the opportunity. Once again, I want to apologize for my hurtful actions. It is my hope that you will forgive me. Your neighbor, 
Phil Postma. He never yelled at me again. He never chased me down again. We weren't the best of friends, but he didn't do those things. I never knew what his problem actually was. He was a hurting man. But think about your problem for a moment. Have you confessed your part in the problem right now or something in the past? Have you confessed your part in terms of what you've done or perhaps what you haven't done that helped to birth that problem? Because so many times people say, you know what, I didn't do anything to to make that problem exist. I didn't do anything at all. And perhaps the problem is you didn't do anything. You sat back, you watched, you knew something was wrong, and you let it just happen. Have you confessed your part in the problem? Something you've done, something that you've not done that helped to birth the problem. Because what Nehemiah teaches us is this. That instead of putting the blame on something else or someone else, Own your part. Start with you first. And if you do this, you're going to be able to see the solution a bit more clearly. Because after Nehemiah, what? He embraces the pain. He recognizes the situation. He's burdened by this. Now he's owning his part of the problem. And now he approaches God further. He says, oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. You see, after you recognize you got a problem, And then after you're truly burdened by your problem, the result of the true burden that you have in your life, this weight that you're carrying, this thing that's keeping you up at night, this thing that's bothering you, will be the next stone in your life. But only if you're burdened will you actually approach God in consistent, fervent, meaningful prayer. Prayer. See, a game changer prays about the problem. And here's the problem sometimes. We might recognize we've got something wrong in our life, but we want to bypass the whole burden thing, and we just want God to fix it. God just solved this for me. And he says, no, no, no. I want you to feel the weight of that problem, and then bring that problem to me in prayer. And how you'll know if you're burdened by it is how much you pray about it. If this is just one you just kind of loft up there and you expect God to answer, you're not burdened. Probably not burdened at all. And so you come to God in prayer. That's what Nehemiah did. In fact, a game changer prays about the problem. And as he ends his prayer, Nehemiah actually prays for two things. First, he prays for success. He writes, and give success to your servant today. Let me ask you, what does success look like? How do you define success? Because for some people, success is having everything work out exactly like they want it to. For other people, success is just, somehow it's just going to work out without causing me any kind of personal pain. For other people, success is, you know, God's going to step in and work the whole deal out for me so I don't have to do anything at all. What do you think success is? Because Nehemiah teaches us this, that success is the outcome we experience when we turn matters fully over to God. We say, God, I need you. In fact, I need you more than I even know that I need you. And you bring this before God in prayer. And you say, God, you know what? I have an idea of what success looks like, but I want your idea of success. So grant me that. Grant me that success, please. And then he also prayed for favor. For favor. Referring to himself, Nehemiah prayed, and grant him, or basically grant me mercy or favor in sight of this man. In sight of this man. What man? He's praying for favor in front of the king. 
King Artaxerxes, the reigning king at that particular time, the very king who had previously decreed that the walls of Jerusalem should not be rebuilt. In fact, you can find his words in Ezra chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. So here's what Nehemiah knows. First of all, he knows that the walls of Jerusalem must be rebuilt if his people, of course, are going to live and survive. He also knew the king had decreed against rebuilding those walls, which is why he prayed for God's favor. He needed God's favor. Where do you need God's favor in your life? Where do you need God's favor in your life? Is it with your boss? Your next door neighbor? Your spouse? A friend? See, God might very well be waiting for you to ask for his favor in your situation. That's what Nehemiah did. So now he prays for success. He prays for favor. And you have to ask, well, who is Nehemiah? What's his job? What does he do? Well, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. That's what he did. That was his job. He actually would pour wine into the cup, give it to the king. And you think, well, that's a pretty simple job. But the reality is it's a very high-paying job. Nehemiah was very, very well off because not only would he pour the wine for the king and give him the cup, but sometimes he'd have to taste the wine first before he gave it to the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And so if you're going to risk your life like that, you get paid a lot of money for it. And that was his job. And so now he's in front of the king almost every single day. God had placed him in the opportune Time and spot to be with this king, right? And so now Nehemiah is going to capitalize on this opportunity. As a result, he's going to ask the king to undo what he previously had decreed, which usually results in kings getting mad and killing you. He's going to put his life at risk. But Nehemiah also knew God. He knew that God could change the heart of that king. And so Nehemiah prayed. He put his full trust in the hands of God. You see, Nehemiah already knew what the Apostle Paul would write, out, write about hundreds and hundreds of years later. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. His purpose. And herein lies the fourth stone. You see, once you recognize you've got a problem... You're calling it out for what it is. You're not running away. You're not explaining it away. And then you're burdened by that problem. And you're so burdened by that problem, you bring it to God in prayer. You say, God, I need you. God's going to do a couple things. You say, you know what? I hear you. And you know what? I'm going to step in. But that means you have a part and I have a part. We're a team working this together. And what God is going to do is he is going to give you this stone right here. He is going to give you purpose. A purpose in the situation. A purpose that needs to be lived out. See, sometimes we think, God, you got the whole deal. I'll just kind of sit back. He says, no, no, no. You got a part. I got a part. Let's do this together. And so a game changer is driven by purpose through their problem. Do you know what your purpose is? As you take a look at your problem, you kind of have an idea about what it is you need to be doing and how are you doing it. Because once you know your purpose in this situation, it doesn't mean the road's going to be easy. That was the case for Nehemiah. In fact, he writes in chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. The king is saying, something's off. Something's wrong. What is it? And now Nehemiah is put on the spot, which is why he writes, 
Then I was very much afraid. He was afraid because he's going to have to give an answer. And now this was his moment. He's afraid. What are you afraid of? Think about that situation in your life. What are you afraid of? You afraid to be honest with yourself? You afraid to be honest with someone else? Are you afraid to live out your purpose for what it might cost you? What are you afraid of? Because here's the deal. The enemy wants your fear to paralyze you. He knows that the key to gaining victory over you is getting you to do nothing at all. So I encourage you to learn from Nehemiah's example. Because in his fear, what does he do? He talks to the king. He says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. That was Nehemiah's purpose, to rebuild those walls. Saying, send me there so I can rebuild those walls. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And so what is the result of Nehemiah living out his purpose? The king actually sends him to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. But before he goes, before he does anything at all, he says this. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. See, if you're going to be a game changer in your life, You've got to first recognize you've got a problem, call it out, don't explain it away. And then be burdened by that problem, so burdened by that problem that you'll weep over it. You might fast over it. You confess your part in creating that problem. You're so burdened by that problem. And then, of course, you come to God in prayer and say, God, I need you to step in. And God says, you know what, I will, but you're going to have to play a part too. And here's your purpose. And once you take part, And you obey what God has for you. And then he brings about the solution and the resolution to what's going on. Do you want to be a game changer? Make sure you got this stone evident in your life. It's so important. It's what Nehemiah did. It's the stone of remembrance. It's the stone of remembrance. Always remembering to give God the credit for the outcome. It's the stone Remember, you see, many people are quick to forget. The Bible says that a mother, once she gives birth, quickly forgets the pain of childbirth. Once she sees that little child. Many Christians are forgetful. We got a problem in our lives. We pray for God to take it away. Suddenly we find ourselves in a day when that problem doesn't exist. We enjoy the green grass. We forget where we were. We take it for granted and we move on. Not Nehemiah. He knew that leadership is all about remembering because remembering keeps you humble. Remembering keeps you thankful, and remembering keeps you strong. So think about this, friends. What has God done in your life that needs to be remembered? What has God done in your life that needs to be remembered? Has your marriage been restored? Have you experienced the birth of a child in your family? Were you facing difficulty, and suddenly the financial resources you needed came at just the right time? Have you experienced a healing salvation. See, walls of leadership are built one stone at a time. Let me ask you, be honest with yourself, what stone or stones are missing in your wall? Because the reality is, if any one of these stones are missing, this wall is coming tumbling down. 
It's not going to stand strong and you're not going to make a difference. So what stone or stones are missing in your life? Do you truly recognize your problem or are you calling it out, being honest with yourself? Are you truly burdened by your problem? Or are you kind of trying to skip that, say a quick prayer and hope God's going to step in and then get bitter because you're not seeing the outcome? Are you truly burdened by your problem? Are you praying, saying, God, I need you. In fact, you know you need him so much, you're coming to him over and over again. Are you praying? Are you living out your purpose? Are you stepping back, hoping somehow the whole thing's just going to vanish and go away? Are you remembering to give God the credit? Because if any of these stones are missing, the wall's tumbling down. Walls of leadership are built one stone at a time. And here's the deal. You make sure you got each one of these stones present in your life. And I'll guarantee you, you will be a game changer. And God will use you in ways you've never before imagined, thought of, or dreamed of in your life. And when he does that, when he does something big for you, always remember to give him the credit. Because without him... Nothing's really possible. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your work in our lives. We thank you that you see value in us when we don't see value in ourselves at all. We thank you for the opportunities that are all around us. And so God, I pray right now that you would touch each heart that's here. Show them very, very clearly what stone needs to be evident in their life. Help them to incorporate that in their life and live that out. Give them eyes to see all the possibilities around them. Then give them a heart to follow the path that Nehemiah embraced. Give them the strength to do it. And God, use every single one of us here to make a radical difference in our corner of the world, wherever that might be. You've called us. You want to use us. Lord, may we be ready. May we be listening. And may we be humble, humble enough to ultimately give you credit for the outcome. God, we thank you for all that you've done, all that you're doing. And now I thank you and we thank you for all that you are about to do as each one of these game changers steps out of this church and goes back into the world. Use us greatly, God, for your glory and for your glory alone. And all God's people said, amen. Go out, make it an incredible week. Make a difference. Let me